0: Episode 73, The Monroe Doctrine and the Missouri Compromise. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, back in episode 42, we talked about how the European powers divided the new world. And we also talked about who colonized what. To recap, Portugal basically colonized Brazil. Spain colonized the rest of South America and all of Central America, plus some islands in the Caribbean and a few parts of North America, mostly the American Southwest. And then on the east coast of North America, it was the English and the Dutch that were doing the colonizing. We also talked about, in the episode about Napoleon, how he installed his brother as the king of Spain, but the Spanish fought a guerrilla war against him. Now this had the side effect of really loosening Spain's hold on its New World territories, though it didn't completely end it. Even though European Spain had less influence on those Spanish territories, the local governors and other rulers were still Spanish. And by the end of James Madison's terms as president, Napoleon had been finally and permanently exiled, and so the Napoleonic Wars were over. So the new president, after Madison, was James Monroe, and he was elected in 1816. And he did not want the European powers meddling in the New World, now that they were no longer distracted by Napoleon. So in Monroe's inaugural address, he said this, In the wars of the European powers in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy so to do. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparation for our defense. With the existing colonies or dependencies of any European power, we have not interfered, and we shall not interfere. But with the governments who have declared their independence and maintained it, and whose independence we have on great consideration and on just principles acknowledged, we could not view any interposition for the purpose of oppressing them or controlling in any other manner their destiny by any European power in any other light than as the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the United States. So he's basically making the point there that the U.S. had not and would not intrude on any of the European disputes between the European powers as long as it was going on in Europe. He's also making the point that the U.S. hasn't interfered with existing colonial territories of those European powers, although that's not exactly true, but the U.S. hadn't really done anything disruptive in Central America or South America. We had interfered a lot with the other colonies in North America, like Florida, etc., and some in the Caribbean, too. But his main point was that the colonial era in the new world was over, and that any attempt by the powers of Europe to oppress or control any of the new countries that were popping up in Central and South America would be seen, as Monroe said, as unfriendly towards the United States. So to sum up, he's saying, we won't interfere over there in Europe, and you better not try to interfere over here. Now, this was a new stance for America, and it was really the first time that America ever tried to openly dictate some kind of foreign policy. And for the first time, America was saying that it was now a world power. Or at least that's what we were trying to say. Europe, for the most part, greeted the announcement with a collective shrug of the shoulders, very much as if your five-year-old brother had issued a new doctrine that said, you'd better stay out of my room or else. Yeah, sure, buddy, whatever. But the Monroe Doctrine does say something about how the United States saw itself in 1817. The U.S. was already beginning to see itself as sort of the protector of democracy and freedom. The U.S. also saw itself as trying to remain neutral in the constant squabbling of Europe. All of this is going to influence American reluctance to enter World War I and World War II, which many people saw as more European squabbling. But this view is going to come to a fairly dramatic end after World War II, as the United States is going to go from being neutral to being basically involved in everybody's business all over the globe. But back during Monroe's administration, they didn't really need to actually enforce this Monroe Doctrine, which is what it was eventually called. And that's probably a good thing, because the United States didn't really have a way to enforce these kind of boundaries around the New World. The U.S. didn't have, at that time, the naval power to protect all of South America. And on top of this, the Monroe administration and the rest of the U.S. government had some other problems to solve at home. Well, south of Georgia, the territory of Florida was nominally controlled by the Spanish, but they had sort of ceased paying much attention to it, except for a few towns like St. Augustine and Pensacola and a few other towns. Much of the territory was really still under the control of the Seminole tribe, who were led at the time by their chief, Osceola. The Seminoles put up a well-organized resistance to ongoing efforts from American settlers to try to occupy land in the north part of Florida. Lots of settlers were killed, and their settlements were often burned. In 1817, in an attack that came to be known as the First Seminole War, General Andrew Jackson led a U.S. force that scattered the Indians in north Florida and burned a lot of their villages the U.S. force also occupied Pensacola and some other Spanish towns. And this effectively ended any Spanish control in Florida, and in 1819, Spain ceded control of Florida to the United States. General Jackson and the U.S. forces had two more wars with the Seminoles, eventually driving them into hiding in the Everglades' swamp and driving others off into a U.S. Indian reservation near Louisiana. During the Second Seminole War, The Seminole chief, Osceola, came to a U.S. fort under a white flag to negotiate after receiving assurances that negotiations would be carried out in good faith. Instead, he was arrested, imprisoned, and eventually killed by the U.S. forces. This did end most of the organized resistance from the Seminoles, though they kept fighting using guerrilla tactics for a few more years. All of this eventually puts the U.S. in charge of Florida, which becomes a U.S. territory in 1822, and then became a state in 1845. But this story also illustrates how the U.S. treated the Indians from this point forward. Like I said last episode, previous to the War of 1812, it had been mostly settlers or local militias versus the Indians. But after the War of 1812, it was the U.S. government versus the Indians. And this is going to go very badly for the Indians, even up to today. Now, this relationship between the U.S. settlers and the Indians is a very complicated thing with a lot of layers to it, but the part that really makes it troublesome is the glaring contradiction between, on the one hand, the ideals of the United States, which include life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the rule of law, democracy, etc., and on the other hand, the U.S. behavior towards the Indians, which basically violated all of those ideals. The U.S. dealt with the Indians by driving them off their lands, forcing them to walk hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to reservations on basically unusable and unwanted land, killing off many of them, and generally dealing with the Indians in underhanded, deceptive ways. The U.S., in the end, violated every treaty that they ever wrote with the Indians. So there's this glaring contradiction between the U.S. ideals and the U.S. behavior. And we can see the same thing in the current behavior of the federal government. It's not new. It's something that's been going on since the early days of the U.S. federal government. The ideals say it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But as one of the people, I really feel like our government isn't for me. It's much more against me. It's much less about protecting my liberties and my pursuit of happiness, and it's much more about control and the pursuit of more of my tax income. So the situation with the Indians was awful, and they were treated quite poorly in places. But it was especially true of their dealings with the U.S. government. And I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating here. Back in the day, the ancient world in the, in the Middle Ages, you know, conquering your neighbors and taking their territory was just how you did it. That's how Rome became Rome. That's conversely how the barbarians undid Rome. They conquered them and took their territory. That's how the Franks did it. That's how the Vikings did it. That's how the early English did it. You conquered your neighbors and you took their land and their stuff. And I mentioned several times previously that the idea that you shouldn't conquer your neighbors and take their land and their stuff is an Enlightenment idea. So we can't really apply that ideal and those principles to the Romans and the Vikings and such. But now... Here we are in the early 1800s, and we have in the U.S. a post-Enlightenment government. In fact, we have the first post-Enlightenment government. In fact, we have what should be a shining example of an Enlightenment government, a government openly and clearly built on Enlightenment principles such as life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, etc. And so now we have this irreconcilable tension between what the government says it's about and what it's actually about. The U.S. government, based on its ideals, should be the good guys. They should have been following the principles upon which they were established, and they clearly weren't. So there's this fundamental hypocrisy in the difference between the U.S. ideals and the U.S. government's actual actions. No one would have batted an eye if the Romans had driven out the Indians. Honestly, you could probably make the argument that the Romans were actually more honorable in their dealings with their enemies than the U.S. government was. The Romans would basically show up in an enemy city and say, join us as allies, or we'll burn your city to the ground and kill everyone inside. And then they would honor the city's choice most of the time. At least the Romans were more consistent with their own values in that. But the U.S. government's dealings with the Indian tribes consistently were at odds with the Enlightenment values that the country had been founded on. The same could be said of the South's dealing with the slaves. There had been slavery since the beginning of recorded history. But now there's this new country that's been built up on the ideals that all men are created equal, life, liberty, etc. And yet it totally fails up to live up to that ideal in terms of the issue of slavery. My point is that the U.S. government and some of the state governments in the early 1800s had already betrayed their own values. And the Indian tribes and the slaves were just the first examples of that. So why are we surprised today at the mess we find ourselves in with our government? The federal government is still doing what it's been doing ever since 1800, ignoring the values it was built on. Are we surprised that the federal government doesn't value the life, liberty, freedom, privacy, and rights of its citizens? We shouldn't be surprised. It's been steadily eroding those rights for almost 200 years now. Okay, off the soapbox and back to President Monroe. I mentioned that the Monroe administration had trouble with the Indians. They also had another thorny issue to resolve. In 1818, the territory of Missouri applied to join the Union as a state. Now, Missouri was going to be the first state west of the Mississippi River, and there were a substantial number of people in Missouri who wanted to make slavery legal there. Although, at the time, there were not actually that many slaves in Missouri. As the U.S. House of Representatives discussed this, it ignited a fierce debate for a couple of reasons. Anti-slavery sentiment in the North was growing, and many states in the North had passed their own state ordinances outlawing slavery and freeing any slaves that were there at the time. So those Northern states did not want, on principle, to admit a new state that allowed slavery. And also at the same time, the Senate was equally divided between slave states in the South and free states in the North, and neither side wanted to give the other side a one-state advantage. The North didn't want Missouri to come in as a slave state, and the South didn't want Missouri to come in as a non-slave or free state. So, one of the Northern representatives introduced a bill that allowed Missouri to join as long as Missouri outlawed slavery, and this bill passed the House, but it did not pass the Senate because all the Southern states voted it down. Then, in 1819, Missouri applied again, and the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, proposed a compromise. He suggested that Missouri be allowed to join as a slave state, and at the same time that Maine would be allowed to join as a free state. This would keep the balance in the Senate. As part of the compromise, a line was drawn on the map, extending west from the very bottom border of Missouri, saying that all new states north of that line would be free states, and all states south of that line would be admitted as slave states. That line was drawn at 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude, and it ran all the way from Missouri to the Pacific. Now, this compromise became known as the Missouri Compromise. And while it sort of solved the problem at that moment, all it really did was kick the can down the road and make it a problem for the next couple of administrations. And no one was really, really happy with the compromise. This is going to cause problems with every state that comes into the Union for the next 40 years, including Kansas and Nebraska, Texas, and California. Part of the problem with California is that the 36-degree, 30-minute parallel runs right through the middle of California. So when California as a territory applied to enter the Union in 1850, some people suggested having it come in as two states, North and South California. But that didn't make much sense because at the time, there weren't that many people there. It wasn't enough to justify two states. Now, of course, it's the state with the highest population in the United States, so maybe that was a good idea in retrospect. But eventually, California was admitted as a free state, but it had to, as part of its agreement to join the Union, it had to send a pro-slavery senator to the Senate. Doesn't that sound already like a violation of the idea of state sovereignty? It does to me. Man, slavery is going to make a mess of this democracy. Just watch. I maybe should have mentioned this back in the episode on the Industrial Revolution, but since I missed it, I'll say it here. The Industrial Revolution, and especially the invention of the cotton gin, and then steam-powered cotton gins, basically reignited the dwindling need for slavery in the South. Because of the cotton gin, the economy of the South switched from tobacco farming, which was already sort of beginning to decline in places, to cotton farming. And cotton farming was even more dependent on slavery than tobacco farming had been. If it hadn't been for the massive increase in the demand for cotton, slavery might have just died out on its own. But it didn't, and it's going to be a thorny issue for the Union for the next couple of administrations, and an issue for the nation even up to the current day. Anyway, the Missouri Compromise didn't do anything to make things better in any way, And it just meant that the ongoing issue of slavery was going to come up again in the future, and also in future episodes of this podcast. We'll definitely come back to this issue again soon, but first, we're gonna go even further south and take a look at one of the things that the Monroe Doctrine was trying to help. Next episode, we'll be looking at Simone Bolivar and the South American independence movements.